0: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's
1: B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Big gifts, rapid trips right from the beginning. Huge red flag. That's why the recommendation is for people to take things slow because manipulative people are not good at is actually honoring other people's boundaries. And they use love bombing as a way of luring people in.
0: Ben Benson, welcome to another episode of Tutor to be Crazy on every Thursday with me. Today, my special guest is Mark Groves. And I know I said his name last name correctly because it's easy. Did I say it right?
1: Yeah, yeah, you did. You nailed it. You nailed it. If you mess up mine, that's a tough one.
0: Mark Groves is actually a human connection specialist who specializes in public speaking and he specializes in helping companies and individuals unite with their most authentic selves through his brand, Create the Love. Mark combines complex academic and research to people's lives in a fun and relatable way to transform how we work, how we produce, and how we relate to each other. Mark also has a self-titled podcast on Spotify that everyone should check out, and he is also obsessed with tacos.
1: I love it. I love it. Nailed it.
0: Thank you. You do a lot of things to help a lot of people, but... Why don't we kind of get to know you? How did you get into this? Were you always fascinated or wanting to connect with people or to connect people? Do you mind telling me a little bit about yourself?
1: Of course. Thanks for having me on and excited to chat. You know, I think with so many people, a lot of our work is sort of born from our wounds, you know, And, and for me, that was certainly true. I used to work in sales and was really interested in how to change human behavior, but more for so from the perspective of how to manipulate human behavior. I worked at like a Best Buy. I grew up in Canada and then worked as a pharmaceutical rep, actually. And so I used to study all of these things, like how do you get someone to change what they choose as a product, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And then I had a relationship and when I was in my late 20s. I was 27. I looked at it just thinking like, why am I so good at everything but talking about my feelings? Like this is not a skill set issue. There's something more going on here. And why do I feel like such a failure? Because I didn't want to get married because I ended an engagement. And why couldn't I choose a relationship with someone who was actually quite incredible? But I just couldn't, like my gut, I just I couldn't choose it. And I started to see how lonely that space actually is because I was in it, how we define our worth based on our relationship status, um, you know, and we seek this mysterious destination till you pass it, which is get married by 27 to 30, have kids by, you know, whatever age, usually 30, 35 now. And if you don't do any of those things, there's something wrong with you. I really wanted to figure out why I didn't think there was anything wrong with me, but I felt like there was because of what society had taught me. So I started to study relationships. I dove deep into the science of them. I wanted to know why do people stay together for 75 years and dislike each other? And why do we call that success? Do some relationships last and really thrive? And why do others not?
0: They did a research, pretty sure it's a Stanford research. It was like the key to happiness. And they study people from they were young, from different type of environments. And a lot of people thought that the key to happiness was success, being famous, being really rich and things like that. And then they found out through all those 70 to 80 years of research, the people who lived the longest found the key to happiness by having close relationships. So people who stayed in happy marriages versus people who stayed in marriages they weren't happy with got diseases faster, were unhappier in life. And people who were in a close, happy relationship lived longer. Their bodies were happy regardless of how much money they made, regardless if they had the job that they love. So I, I found that as fascinating. And I also really love what you said in the beginning, how the reason you started to be so fascinated with it is because you were lacking those type of interactions, because that's actually why I started to get the past couple of years, I started to get really into trying to understand human behaviors in general, because I didn't grow up with that type of relationship with my father, a type of empathy and emotions and, you know, touch and telling mm-hmm. people I love them. So I ended up feeling so fascinated with understanding like why people act that way or how to love somebody more and things like that. So I think it's really cool that sometimes what you end up lacking is what you end up kind of becoming your passion. <laughs>
1: Right. And then you like share your journey of what you're learning and you realize, you know, I think one thing that's just been so beautiful about just being able to, you know, like your work, like mine is that people feel witnessed finally in someone else's own, their vulnerability, their suffering, their desire to learn something. Cause if, what it does is it says like, we're not the only ones because so much of our pain Makes us feel very isolated, not recognizing that it's actually what we struggle with that that makes us like other people. You know, it's not perfection that people relate to, even though we double tap things on Instagram like that. Uh, what we actually relate to is truth, is is reality, is that being a human is hard sometimes, a lot of the time.
0: I read that you were engaged for to your girlfriend for five years, and the day you guys moved into a new house, in that moment, you said that you felt that you should have been more excited than you were. So what was it that made you so soundly hesitant and less excited than you should have been?
1: I grew up going to a Catholic school, not like strict Catholic, but, you know, there's always a baseline. And I grew up learning like all about, you know, get married by a certain age. And as I said earlier, and I was 27 and I had met her in college. It was like your classic what you're supposed to do. I got to this moment. I was really nervous before we even got engaged. I didn't want to get married. I didn't know why. I just, the thing I was met with was, well, men are just afraid of commitment. Men are just this and that. And it's just normal to feel scared. And I was like, okay. The moment I got engaged, nothing changed. And I expected things to change. And I think that so often it's like we think that if we get engaged or get married, the relationship will get better. or If we have a kid, the thing will get better. Not realizing that making that choice from a very grounded place, which we don't actually observe, we don't learn about relationships in school. So I just observed and took what other people's truth was as my own. You should be nervous. You should be scared. You, you might not want to. You're just supposed. And that like is such a, a weird way to think about things because why would you not want To run down the aisle with someone you're spending, you know, quote unquote, the rest of your life with. It was in that moment that I just knew I needed to dive in. I just knew that I needed to learn, like, from that space for about three months, I just researched, like, how do you know if someone's the one? Like, how do you even know? And that's such a grandiose sort of question and a big one. And of course, there's part that's surrender and and you're never going to be certain about anything. But I think you should be certain about a choice. And I wasn't certain about a choice. And it was really when I started to recognize how unfair it was to her of like, someone asked me, could someone else love her better? And I thought, yeah. And it was like, I was so caught up in my own pain and my own uncertainty and my own fear of letting people down and hurting her if I ended it. I didn't realize that I was hurting her by not showing up within it. And not allowing her that, and I was worthy of uh, something I wanted to choose. In it was just this moment of of recognition that I wanted my integrity to be greater than that.
0: So, do you think then it's a red flag if there's someone else out there that's been engaged for a long period of time? Is that should that be kind of alarming?
1: We were only engaged for three months. We were together for five years. If you're engaged for five years, is that a red flag? I mean. If you don't have any intention of getting married, you should just tell the truth. You know, I think it's it's a point of inquiry because there are some people who like stay engaged for their whole lives. And, you know, it's not a big deal. But I think if you get engaged with the intention of marrying someone and then you're not actually going to do that, if you just did it to appease them, like tell the truth. That's I mean, I think relationships that are held together by not telling the truth are destined to fail.
0: Right. Cause, okay. So I saw that you were talking about how you made a rule for yourself, stating that you would have every conversation that you didn't want to have because those are the ones that matter. And I totally agree with you. So why do you think there are so many people out there, men and women, including myself, that are actually so afraid of this when in reality, it can really avoid so many issues.
1: You know, I think it's multi-layered. One is that we place our self-worth in our relationship status if i want to bring forward a subject like i feel disconnected i'm not happy with how you handled that or etc etc if i'm afraid that that conversation might end my relationship i won't have it because we've been taught that staying together is the the golden star that you get like think about how we teach relational hierarchy you can celebrate anniversaries but have we ever seen anyone celebrate the depth of a relationship no, I've never seen that. That's new. The other one is, is think about like when we look at someone's relationship, we go, okay, someone who's married is better than someone who's engaged. Cause we ask people who engage, when are you getting married? When someone's just dating, we ask them, when are they getting engaged? When someone is single, we're like, why are you single? And if someone's divorced, we sort of put like a asterisk beside their name as if they did something wrong when they could have learned uh, so much from that experience and be a better partner from it. And so it shows you, we have this hierarchy that is relational length and we have a hierarchy that's relational status. Both of those don't contribute to bravery that might break a relationship because we don't celebrate depth and the ability to have hard conversations. We celebrate length and status. And so this is really kind of fascinating when you think about it because we've not observed how to have healthy conflict and because everyone's been operating by these rules so the ability to have hard conversations is a skill we can learn but we also have to be willing to recognize that the conversations that can end relationships are actually the conversations that deepen relationships they're the ones that make it bigger and better and stronger
0: i still struggle with this issue sometimes i avoid conflict as much as possible but whenever i see a conflict coming where something upsets me, my first instinct is to be like, okay, you know what, then it's just not going to work out. Like we don't have to do this. Done. Whether it's with a partner or even a, a friendship relationship. It's just, that's my first instinct is like, okay, whatever. Versus coming up with a second thought that, okay, how about we discuss, Hey, this hurts my feelings. Let's work through this. Let's keep going. I, and I know I'm not the only one that experienced yeah, it. Definitely not. I feel like on one end, we continue relationships we're actually not interested in in the long run because we don't want to be alone because we're scared to be alone. That's like a whole issue. But on right. the other hand, also feels like these days things end much faster because of the conversations we don't want to have, whether they st- stay too long because we're not having those conversations or we leave, we walk away way faster because we don't have those conversations.
1: Totally agree. Those are both extremes of conflict avoidance. One is I'm going to stay in the thing and just suffer through it. And the other one is I never want to experience any form of discomfort and suffering. But neither person in those circumstances, which I've been in both of those circumstances, neither person is actually cultivating the skill set to make it past the space. It's like the honeymoon phase of a relationship. And the research has shown to last Three to four years. Now, that's where it becomes – goes from like this ecstatic, romantic love to more friendship type of love. Now, what also occurs there is usually people stop having an identity. Their relationship sort of defines them. They don't do stuff that's important to them anymore. So really what's occurring is that the the spark is going because there's no space between us and our partner. There's no individuation. And so really when you think about like, why do we avoid having hard conversations or why do we even avoid closeness? Both of them are ways that we don't have to be seen. We don't have to be vulnerable. Like to receive love, you have to believe you're worthy of it. The sort of cliche is like, hey, to fall in love with anyone, you need to fall in love with yourself first. The truth is that if you don't go to the depths of what you're afraid of within yourself, then you'll never let anyone close to those things either
0: can you love someone if you don't fully love yourself?
1: I think that someone can think like you can go through the act of giving and the act of caring and the act of love. But a lot of us love people at the cost of ourselves, or we love ourselves at the cost of relationship.
0: Yeah. I think a lot of times people think it's a healthy thing to be like, I put my partner first. I'll die for my partner. Blah blah, And it's like, no, that's actually not true. When you, you, When you love someone, like love is in a way a contract because you are asking for something in your turn. You're asking it to be loved back. So a lot of times, I know, but a lot of times people think their love is so selfless. And I believe that you shouldn't view it like that. Cause when you're saying, I'm putting my partner first. I'm doing this and this, that means you don't value yourself enough to put yourself first. And also you're expecting the partner to do the same. And when they don't, you'll get disappointed.
1: Right. And you set yourself up for disappointment. See how that is a contract that says I'm going to it's codependency really is what it is. And it's self abandonment. It's like someone saying, I'm an empath. I just love and love and love. And it's like, well, an empath without boundaries is codependent. If your superpower is feeling other people's feelings with their permission, ideally, you can't honor and protect that superpower if you don't have boundaries around who you are you know and boundaries around what you allow in you don't want everybody's feelings in your field and it's like when you're someone who identifies but i just give and give and give and i love and love and love and no one meets me there that already is a victim statement it's not empowering it's saying that i give you all these things under the idea that I'm giving them unconditionally, but really I'm not. I'm giving them with the condition that you stay, that you choose me, that you validate me. And, you know, I have so much compassion for that because I've certainly done exactly what you're saying. And I have compassion for it because it comes from a child survival strategy of wanting to be enough. And if I hustle for love, I'll, you'll finally notice me. My, my worth is in my work in the love department. When it's not, your worth is just, it just is.
0: I love the fact that you mentioned the childhood attachment styles, because I think that is something most of us don't really explore. I didn't really know about it until a year or two ago when I interviewed an empath therapist and he kind of explained me the, the attachment style. So I know, for example, since I'm that extreme type that walks away really quickly, it's because my attachment style as a child was to be super independent when Things that I didn't like were happening. So it's kind of like, okay, I got myself, like I have my own back and I'll take care of myself. And it accidentally went into my adulthood, which by the way, I constantly tried to be better. So I'll never blame my childhood's trauma, whatever. Like, and I tell my, my listeners to kind of, you know, eventually you have to let it go and you have to take responsibility for yourself and grow as a person. Do you know all the different attachment styles?
1: Yeah. The research is based on a study where they observed a mother and a child playing and simply put, like, mom would leave the room while the kid's playing, mom would come back and they'd observe how the baby interacted with mom. The first one, mom would leave the room, mom would come back, the baby would be, you know, upset, reunite with mom, scared, not leave mom's side. This idea like when mom leaves, I'm afraid she won't come back. That's called an anxious attachment style. The second one would be mom leave, mom's come back, they hang out, they high five, baby goes back to playing. That's secure attachment. When you leave, I trust that you'll come back and I trust you when we're in the same space. Last one, mom leaves, mom comes back, baby's like, eh, didn't even really notice you were gone, not a big deal. But physiologically, that baby's body is actually responding like the first one. So they're just not showing their insecurity. They're showing their insecurity as ambivalence. And so the way that they cope is by acting as if they don't care. And a lot of people, and so if you're listening and you're like, "Ooh, I could be a bit of both. That makes sense because some of us will pursue someone, get anxious about them not texting us back, et cetera. And then we get them and they're like, hey, I like you. And we're like, ah, nah, this is too much. You're too much. And so we switch between the two. And the reason that is, is because you have a secure attachment, which is really defined by my partner's needs matter as much as my own, not more than my own anxious attachment, not less than my own avoidant attachment. And so you have a secure attachment and you have insecure attachments, anxious and avoidance and splitting between the two. Often people will think like, oh, well, I want to know how do I change how I relate to my partner? And I invite them to explore, how do you relate to the space that's between you and a partner? Because for an anxious person, space creates anxiety. For an avoidant person, space creates safety. So of course, when you're someone anxious. And you're attracted to someone who is avoidant, you're just getting rewounded. If you're someone avoidant and you're attaching, attracting someone anxious, you're just getting rewounded. So the thing is to learn, like you said, you know, like you don't want your childhood experiences to dictate your life. And they're not your fault, but they are your responsibility, what you do with them. Man, that sunset is gorgeous.
0: Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Yeah, what is up with that? Because I have this conversation with one of my friends. She's a classic (laughs) fighter. She is the most giving person I've ever met in my life. And I constantly feel this need to protect her she doesn't even need me to protect her sometimes I'm just way harsher than her in life. And sometimes I get, I feel like people can take advantage of her because she will do anything for anyone. And I feel like it's so easy to walk all over her. So we constantly have conversations as both of us being empaths, but in different types of way that we constantly accidentally get in relationships with narcissists or with people that take off like all of our energy. So how can you even see signs of that?
1: well i think interesting is the language we accidentally end up in relationships with narcissists like you were walking down the street and you just tripped and fell into a relationship with a narcissist like how did i end up with this americano in my hand and a narcissist on my arm it's being able to recognize in the question you're asking is the right question which is how do i recognize the red flag i was reading a funny meme that said sometimes i just wonder how red the flag can get you know like it's very funny but what's fascinating is like a lot of people miss them because they learned as children to ignore red flags to tolerate their circumstances. Or they observe their parents ignore red flags from each other. So they just learned that you have to not pay attention to them to survive or to stay in relational circumstances. Because, you know, when you think about dating, what's interesting about, like, let's say Tinder or Bumble, or it doesn't really matter, the dating app. I could have two people living in the exact same zip code, postal code, wherever, in the world with the exact same Tinder people on their profile, and one person will inevitably end up in relationship with unavailable people, narcissists, whatever. Love bombing is a huge red flag. You see this all the time where people will be like big gifts, rapid trips right from the beginning. Huge red flag. That's why, you know, the recommendation is for people to take things slow because what manipulative people are not good at, is actually honoring other people's boundaries. And they use love bombing and things like that as a way of luring people in. And so we have to remember that when we're dating, the trap is often finally someone likes me or this person's everything I ever imagined. But they're not, we're not realizing that we're actually choosing a partner. Like we forgot about the fact that we're choosing. So instead of just thinking there's this person and they're the one and they might be in this Tinder app, start thinking this person shows Possibility. I'm excited about a second date. I'm not going to throw all my eggs into that basket. I'm going to still be in communication with other people because that calms the anxiety. And I'm going to discern and figure out if this person is becoming the one. Becoming the one is such a different idea than just being. Stop giving that title to people. Everyone, if you're listening and you're like, they're the one and you've been on like two dates or you just texted and maybe you FaceTime once, you know, it's like, don't just give that shit away. We, we forget that attraction is a choice. It's not something you just have to pursue.
0: Well, in the end of the day, you're gonna keep breaking up until you find "quote unquote" your person. But also, research uh, when it comes to ghosting, research shows that the people get affected by being ghosted the most are people with the uh, with lower self esteem. So it actually makes sense because that makes they place sense. their worth on that person versus being like oh, the universe has something better out there for me. And they knew I wasn't going to break <laughs> right. up with that person. So they just did me a favor me <laughs> across the pastor. Right. Yeah, it's funny because yesterday I was having dinner with uh, one of my friends and she was telling me about this guy. She was dating or she just ended. And in the beginning of the story when she said, we went on our first date and then, I don't know, something happened. We were talking and I tell him about my grandfather and he starts Crying, listen to the story because he can relate. And then we looked at each other and we're like, oh my God, something feels different. Like, you're my person. I was like, okay, so this doesn't end good, right? And she's like, how did you know? But I've been there where you have that need to be loved so much. You want to be loved so much. And you Mm -hmm. love the idea of love versus loving the person that's in front of you that you feel like, oh, I I love this person. It's like, you don't fucking know this person yet. It's been a week. (laughs) You don't know that person at all. But you love the idea of loving them. And then I've been on the other end now where my attachment style has changed in a way where I'm still attracting those people that move so fast, but I'm not moving fast anymore because I'm trying to have the healthy type of relationships, but I'm still going for those same people. So they freak out with me. And then I end up feeling a little bit not good enough. Because the minute I don't want to hang out with them every single day, they find someone else that they can be like obsessed with. And it's like such a high. And then I feel like, shit, maybe I should have hung out with them every single day. Or maybe I should have said baby or babe within like the second day, (laughs) no.
1: Well, it's like this continued invitation of like, where does the line of who you are end? Because someone says, well, we didn't hang out enough. Now I'm hanging out with someone else. They're not your person. You know, it's like recognizing that that already is manipulative behavior. What a great thing to get rid of. But recognizing that like the line of what you're learning just keeps moving closer to who you are, which is so beautiful because you're seeing the evidence that you're not in a relationship with them is actually showing that what you're doing is working. Isn't that like what an interesting different shift of perspective is like how you're relating right now is allowing you to learn where your body says, now, when they say, oh, well, you know, I wanted to drop this L-bomb or we didn't hang out enough, your body is learning that that's a red flag. Well, there's another flag that's way before that, that you're going to keep getting more and more attuned to. And so, shit, well done. That sounds great. You're doing a great job. You know, dating is dating is fun. Dating is sorting. And we have to learn that it can be one of the most healing gifts
0: when you first got into your relationship with your partner that you're with for five years, what was your definition of love then versus what's your definition of love now?
1: You know, I would say that prior to the relationship I'm in today, I would say that formally my definition of love before my engagement ended, um, and even probably up until my like early 30s would have been I'm willing to go to the ends of the earth for this relationship. And if I lose you, I lose me. And, you know, like you complete me, Jerry Maguire kind of style. It would have been this idea of like, we give at all costs and we like, we'll do anything for this. And while I think that part is still true that we should, you know, contribute to the relationship and really what I notice is such a difference is like, there's this line from. Um, Harriet Lerner, who's a really incredible psychologist and writer, and in her book, Dance of Intimacy, she says, if you don't feel free to come and go from a relationship, you will not feel free to be yourself in a relationship. And so I recognize like in my partner and I, we've been together six years and we broke up for a year last year. I remember us having this conversation of like, if you left the relationship or I left the relationship, I would still love you like love doesn't go anywhere because the container changes and i think we have this idea that that because a relationship ends there's no longer love that the love is this energetic exchange that's determined based on relationship status now we know that's obviously not true because when you go through a breakup you experience real pain real devastation but i'd say my definition now is recognizing like love is free love just is it just exists The boundaries I place around my heart are different. The agreements we place in the relationship are different. But I never want my partner to ever experience this idea that she doesn't get to be fully who she is. I don't get to be fully who I am. That the relationship is not contributing to each of our lives. And that the relationship as a container is us turned shoulder to shoulder facing the world as opposed to like, you're wrong. This is this, this our conflict resolution is always about how do we deepen this relationship the sacredness of it and how do we invite each other to continue to be better people most people don't operate in relationship where the relationship has the fluidity and the flexibility and the expansion to hold each person as they expand and so our relationship is not a prison it is a place where you go to be free not where you give up freedom and that to me is something I just continue to be learning about. You know, I'm, it's not something I really saw modeled and it's not something I really read about in books. It's something that I'm creating with her. And, and it feels like a really exciting thing, although really confronting because there's no map. It's like just taking bushes to the face as I tread a new, a new path, you know,
0: my dad was with a lady for five years, they even lived together, but he knew in his head. For from the beginning, he was never planning on marrying her. He then, I think, left her and met my mother. And within a month, they got married because she just checked all the boxes he was looking for. My parents are still together till this day. Although, I mean, obviously, I have an account called Daddy Issues, So that comes from somewhere. <laughs> but they stay together. In my opinion, looking at it now, we're looking at relationships. One month feels like too soon. You know, but back then, that's they did what they did. My mom, I don't think she even fully loved my dad the way he loved her but you're like ready for something. and But then five years is too long if they're not offering you the commitment that you're looking for. So at what point does a man realize whether or not somebody is their person or kind of in their head that they want a future with that partner? How early on do you think that happens?
1: Well, I think there's that fleeting idea of, you know, I always think as the relationship is unfolding, you should at least see a future that's near, that's with them. If my intention in dating is to get married and to have kids or to whatever it is, I have to find someone who has the same intention. If someone doesn't get clear on what their deal breakers are, what their relational desires are, and I'll hear people say like, if I said, hey, are you looking to have kids? They're like, if I find the right person. And I'm like, are you planning on not finding the right person? Like, let's assume that you're planning on finding the right person and then make plans for that, not let's plan the second escape route. Life, right? So it's when someone gets very clear, most people don't get clear on what they want. in their dating because then they won't have to filter people. They'll just get connection. But you have to be willing to sit in the space between what you say you want and saying no to what it is you don't want to prove to yourself that you're worthy of it and also to create space for that person to show up when you're not living in alignment with what you say you want. The person that you say you want is going to walk right by you.
0: One of my good guy friends, he met his partner and they were together for years and he literally said there's nothing wrong with her. She's perfect and she's probably my best match, but the reason they had to break up was because he just doesn't see himself ever getting married. And that's what she wants. Cause I was like, okay, then don't get married. Just have kids. And he was like, I would love to do that with her. She's literally my person. There's no one more perfect for me than her. And I'm like, okay, then why do you care? It's If she wants to get married, like it's just a piece of paper. Like, why do you care? Then just do it. He's like, I just, I don't believe in it. I just don't see it. It doesn't make sense. Yeah. So she kind of walked away. And I still can't fathom that in my brain. How can you let your perfect person walk away over just a piece of paper.
1: Especially the fear of something, not the actual thing, but the fear of the thing, which shows you that there's an unresolved thing that's associated with marriage. But that's also like, why does needing to get married become the absolute thing to you? Like, what does it give you that you couldn't just get in the regular relational construct? Like we've been taught a lot of things about marriage and relationships, right? That it's an end goal. What happens if you don't get it? Or, you know, are we not validated? Are we not enough? Does it create security? No, it creates a false sense of security. It's like when people are in a relational challenge, they'll be like, let's get engaged or let's have a kid. No, don't, because neither of those things are going to hold you together. And and they're going to be exciting for a moment, but regular life is going to come back and your regular connection is going to come back. But you see couples and people do this individually too, chasing highs to never have to deal with the truth.
0: What advice do you have for... Someone that is currently trying to get over someone, whether they were in a real relationship or as the way dating works these days, somebody <laughs> actually phone unquote" dated, but they did date in their head and it was like almost there, but not really. They weren't sure where they were anyway. <laughs> over now.
1: Yeah, you know, I think there's this idea that length of a relationship dictates the sort of validity of our pain from an ending but you can have incredibly short relationships that have incredibly large impacts. I'd argue that sometimes new pain is actually old pain being on surface. That's never been dealt with. Um, But you know, there's some very real biological things that go on when relationships end. first part is, Parts of our brains light up that are the same parts as cocaine addicts. So we're like addicted, right? So we're like addicted to our partner and we often forget the reason we broke up or even that we wanted to break up with them and then they broke up with us. So now we want them back. Like we forget the truth of of why the relationship ended and we only remember the good parts.
0: From research, it shows that that's us going through withdrawals by continuously going in your head through the good parts and forgetting the bad
1: parts. Yeah. And you have to prioritize your healing. So, you know, I'll say to people like mute them, block them, just get them off your social media and stop feeding, as you were saying, like going in and looking at things that just trigger you more. But you're right by removing that from your life and you have to deal with it. And, you know, like to me relational endings, breakups are honestly one of the greatest birthplaces of people's self-worth, their reclamation, them actually healing and becoming and creating the relationship they actually wanted. I mean, I created a whole course around breakup recovery because I was like, this is, can be the gateway to everything.
0: Yeah. And I agree. Sometimes it's like, Everyone does you break up such a negative way versus being like, oh, I, I'm a different person now or I got to learn everything that I liked, including things that I don't like. Or I'm going to take the yeah. parts from this relationship and I'm going to bring it to the next one. Plus the other things I'm looking for.
1: CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.
0: So speaking of dating and relationships, how important is it to have the same um, love languages with your partner? Is it that important or you just have to understand them?
1: Yeah, I don't think it's important to have the same love language. I think it's convenient. (laughs) You know, it's definitely convenient. I find that, and if people aren't familiar with the love languages work by Gary Chapman, you can do it for free, the test online. And it's uh, words of affirmation, quality time, gifts. Acts of service and physical touch. Yeah. What often is, is that the way we give love. So if you're someone who gives a lot of gifts, it's likely that that's the way you receive love. So we assume that people receive love the same way we do. Usually what I find, at least in relational construct, is often our partner's love language is actually our lowest one. And so it requires us to reach the most and step into the most vulnerability. I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but you know, when you like PDA and the other person's like, Oh, I don't want to hold hands or like, stop kissing me in public. It's usually because it's like more of a challenge for one person to receive that or be do it in public for whatever reason, there's no judgment on it. But just showing that usually what our partner requires from us is something that's a stretch. And I often see couples where they might say like, hey, I don't feel loved by you. Like, I just don't feel like you show up. And they are like, oh man, I couldn't show up more. Like, I pick you up from work. I do this, this, and this. And what they're really doing is they're just missing each other. One person needs to be told how loved they are, uh, words of affirmation. They need to be told how great they're doing or appreciation about them. And the other person does acts of service, picks them up, makes them lunch. Does So they're actually loving each other But in their love language, they don't see it as love. And so we have to learn how to sort of curate our love to a way that someone receives it, which I what a beautiful thing to like know that we can customize each other in this way.
0: Yeah. And I think it's cool that you get to understand because when I was younger and I didn't grow up with the physical touch and all that, I mean, my dad and I had such a weird relationship. We didn't even he didn't hug me until I was in my early 20s. I remember when I was really young um, and first moved to the US and I saw my my first american friend asked for dad for advice and then hug him and kiss him on the cheek and be like i love you i was mortified when You're i was like looking what at that. and i i genuinely <laughs> like what just happened she's like what are you talking about and i'm like you just hug your dad like that like all the time and she's like yeah and i'm like he just lets you she's like what do you mean now? and she's like you don't hug your dad and i was like i can't even imagine doing that. Like, what if my dad's like, ew, don't touch me? But it's crazy to me looking back now. It is funny because I'm like, I can't believe as a child, like that was the process that was going through my brain. But they right. eventually I changed my whole family's dynamic. It's a whole thing that we I all decided. hug now. We all hug. We're so That's much- awesome. hug each other. It was one day when I decided, like, you know what? I love my dad, regardless of our past. Like, I'm over it. I'm gonna forgive him because you know, people. Are not alive forever. And I love him and I want him to know that I love him. And I want to hug him. And I don't care if he doesn't say it back because I'm confident enough in our love. And I just want him to know how I feel. Beautiful. It's nice to hear, even if people don't say it back, because there's there's other ways for them to show love. Like growing up, my father showed me love by doing acts of service and supporting me and all that. Well, I actually just needed those words of affirmation and I needed a touch. But then the partner that I ended up getting for like seven years he needed touch but I didn't know how to give it to him even though that's something that I really needed because I've never I don't, I don't have that physical attachment with people so I would get really weirded out if anyone even touched my shoulder or like touching having PDA with my boyfriend even though my brain I was dying to do it I had no idea how to do it so it was interesting and then I would then buy him gifts because that's how my dad was doing it with me growing up he still felt unloved, and I couldn't understand why because I'm like I'm showing you that I love you I don't get it So I think it is really cool when you get older and you get to learn like, oh, we did love each other. Like, oh, my dad did love me. Just not the way I wanted him to love me. That's so cool.
1: I love that. What you're saying shows you that, shows all of us, the absence of a behavior doesn't mean an absence of love. And also the recognition that you like were conditioned or taught that that wasn't a thing. And then you're like, wait, I want that thing. And you just did it. And then I love what you said about now the family hugs, because this is how beautiful the work can be as an individual to learn what you were taught. And do you want to keep it? Or do you not? Does it serve the relationships you want to create? Or does it not? And you just healed up your family tree. Like, that's so cool. So now, you know, if you have kids one day, it's like, they will be loved in a different way. They'll be hugged, they'll be cared for. And they won't have that absence. And I mean, that's healing. I love that. That's transformation.
0: And I actually am all about PDA now with anyone that I date, which is so funny. It's like the opposite. But I think I wanted to do it. It was so creepy. I would literally just stare at my boyfriend and be like, what are you looking at? And I'm like, nothing in my head. I'm like, fuck, I wish I could just hug him.
1: Uh, (laughs) And now you can.
0: Right. <laughs> what are some red flags that somebody should look out for um, before entering a relationship with someone? Aside from also, like you talked about somebody moving too fast with you or saying I love you the, ne- the second date or anything like that. What else is there to look out for? Oh, love bombing.
1: Yeah, love bombing for sure. I, I, you know, I think someone not being clear with what they want, like being sort of ambivalent. So if you're like, hey, what it is a normal dating question, even in the texting process, to say, what are you looking for? And if someone says, oh, I'm just looking to take things casual and see where they go. Yes, but what are you looking for? Like, where do you hope they go? That's what I would ask back to that. Where do you hope they go? Because that ambivalence is a way to not have to give an answer. And that allows people when we like get into those relational dynamics, we're like, yeah, I'll just go with the flow. But really, your body's like, uh, we know how this goes. This usually ends with us wanting something, them not, and we pretend it. So, so many of us in dating self-abandon in order to maintain connection. And, you know, that's – we got to not do that. If you notice someone self-abandoning to stay with you, that's also a red flag. You know, I think a lot of the times – we uh, think of red flags being about just external behaviors, but also we have to pay attention to when we notice someone collapsing and not standing in their own truth, in their own power, which is a red flag. You can't trust someone who doesn't tell you the truth. You know, I think if someone cancels plans with you and doesn't offer another time, that's a red flag. Someone is inconsistent, says they're going to message you later, and they don't, and they say they're going to call you later, and they don't, you already have someone who doesn't honor their word. So you can invite that person like, hey, when you say that and you don't do it, it makes it feel like I can't trust you. How they respond to your boundaries, massive red flag too. If they don't honor them, they don't respect them. They tell you you're selfish. All of those things are red flags.
0: Yeah, I like all of that. Cause I think a lot of things you said, I feel like I've experienced with partners. And then I feel like I've also been on the other end having someone else experience it. But I think being self-aware though, is very important. Oh, I think yeah. when I talk to people and they're like, everyone I is an asshole and this person does this, this person does this and you're listening to them talk and you're kind of like, okay, so you're perfect.
1: Right.
0: Interesting. I like everything you're saying because I can relate to being on the other end of both things. Obviously, we talked about our fear of having a conversation or our biggest fear in general is rejection. And you have a video where you said that you invite rejection into your, your life. Because you think it's important. Obviously, we can grow and learn from it. So how can other people reach that point? Because I do think it's important.
1: Yeah, I think it's when we start defining that rejection doesn't define my self-worth. So like if you reject me and I know who I am and I know that I show up in my highest level of values and behavior and integrity, then you rejecting me has nothing to do with me. If you reject me and you tell me uh, your behavior is not OK, the way you spoke, the way you did, whatever it is, the way you responded in that moment. Then I know that there's still valuable information. So no matter what rejection, even if you think about it from a business perspective, like trying to get a job or trying to start a business, rejection is never actually saying your dreams not okay or your relationship desires aren't okay. It's saying how you're going about it just might not be the right way yet, or this person just isn't a match. You know, like the, I, I often think about like that the dream we had is not always the dream we have in that. It changes. I'm sure when you first started your Instagram, you know, things have shifted. Just like when I first started my business, the intention of it is similar, but how I do it is changing. You know, I do way more video now than I ever did. I started a podcast like you did. So, I think just being able to recognize that like rejection is just this invitation to change direction. It's always informing us. It's an invitation for us to be better. That's when you start to take your own worth in your own hands. And when you know you get choice, you take responsibility for who you are, then rejection, although might be accompanied with shame, with guilt, is still saying there's a better version of you or um, an opportunity to not give away your worth to this person.
0: Yeah. And I agree with you, whether it's in a, a relationship or at work or whatever it is. I think there are other people who take it in a way that it breaks them. And then there is the opposite, which I think I used to think I was very strong with how I handle rejection in a way that I did this thing where I block it out of my brain and I just keep going. And I never realized how much that was going to build up somewhere inside of me that I'm just carrying on because I would just keep going like, OK, next thing. And I was like, wow, I'm so strong. I just move on so fast. I'm like a robot. But really... I never dealt with rejection without realizing right. like I did not allow myself to feel those emotions. I was like, okay, next thing, whatever, that person's dead to me or whatever, this doesn't work out. They don't know what they're talking about next versus being like, okay, let's dissect this. Why did this happen? All this stuff. So I think both ends are extreme and it's important to learn how to deal with it and then how to grow from it. And then you, you know, start a new route.
1: You know, I'm getting used to letting life look different in that that is good because I'm going to change. And so is life. I mean, I didn't expect a pandemic a year and a half ago. And then now we're all zooming from our living rooms, you know,
0: I'm a very positive person because I know what it's like to be at your lowest point, And I try my best not to get, go there. So I actually can see the positive in everything I do. And so do you think that's a good way to view life or do you think that in some way can also then quote unquote harm me or, Uh, stop me from growing because I just continuously just view everything in my little happy bubble.
1: No, I mean, I think it's important. The term that they use for like a more destructive form of positivity is called toxic positivity. There's a, a researcher on emotion named Susan David who talks about it. She's a Harvard researcher. Toxic positivity is absence, absent of groundedness. So if I'm positive about life, you come to me and you're like, hey, I'm going through this breakup. And I'm like, oh, amazing. Think about all the things that are possible. I'm still not sitting with you in the space of emotion. That's really important that you can be both grieving and growing. And so toxic positivity would say, let's just focus on the growing and, and not explore the grieving. I think often we try to prevent fe- people from feeling feelings. We don't know how to sit in ourselves. And I say that from a (laughs) reference, like knowing that was true for me. But being able to say like, hey, how can I support you in this? And how can I move you towards what's possible now? I think there's a hard part when people are going through a loss that we like want to give them the positive (laughs) outlook right away. But, you know, like when you're going through a breakup right away and people are like, think about what's possible. And you're like, F off.
0: That friend that's really nice that sometimes I feel people walk all over her when I want to grieve. And she'll be like, okay, but that's amazing Yeah, she does that. And I'm like, not now. Like, let me be my feelings. I need to process this.
1: She doesn't know how to sit in the feelings of grief and rage. And so she doesn't know how to be with you in it. When we can sit in our own feelings of anger, rage, loss, grief, they're not scary to us when we're with other people. With their experiencing it, we're like, tell us more. Because we know that that's where the gold is. I know that all of my greatest growth has always come from my greatest losses because they informed me and they informed who I am and how I can be better. And so it's like positivity that's absent of groundedness is not healthy, but positivity that's like, that sucks. I didn't get that thing but I'm going to fucking crush it and I'm going to keep going. That's, that's beautiful.
0: Yeah, I agree with you. Especially I think at that moment when I made the decision to start hugging my dad and then making my family a little more softer, what I wanted to be as a person. And then, you know, to be the example for them was at a moment where I mentally hit rock bottom and it was like fully lost myself, started to develop the idea of daddy issues. Daddy Mm -hmm. issues made me feel again, like I, Found myself and how much it doesn't matter anymore what other people think because I got to see that everyone feels lost. And from that moment, it was like the first time in my life that I was like, oh, I really like myself. Or like, this is cool. Like, I don't care to fit in anymore. And yes. I guess it's so I was like, I don't care about rejection because right now I like why I'm as a person. So I, I, I do Amen. think it's really interesting, you know? And so is your lowest moments if you take notice in your lowest no. moments.
1: Yeah. That rock bottom is is finally something you can stand upon.
0: Yeah, thank you. It's great that we both found something from a negative moment into and you know created a whole thing from it. I, I love that. But this is really interesting. Do you think people who consider themselves empaths may actually be narcissists because they may have a goal or a fetish of fixing people?
1: Ooh, that's a really good question. You know, there is an interesting body of work that has begun and I've read a bit of it on the idea that actually the victim mindset is actually narcissistic in and of itself right because it's very all about me what i think is fascinating about that is that the characteristics of a narcissist which would be a lack of empathy a lack of compassion are actually perhaps being weaponized in that space of an uh, of an empath who is all about fixing i mean when you think about it often the construct of a relationship is that people who have empathic characteristics often end up with people who have narcissistic characteristics. I'm not saying that's always true. I'm saying that when there is relational patterns, those are the two types of archetypes of people that end up together when they're together. And what's interesting about that is like, one is the person is like constantly victimized and I'm speaking out of this space. You know, I think it's important that there's still compassion for being in there. But they're constantly victimized and everything is about their victimization. And the other person is everything is about them and nothing is their fault. I think it could be, but I think it's a real delicate area of conversation.
0: Um, No, but I know what you're saying. I used to have a friend that was, we had such a toxic friendship because she had a very victim mentality. And it was very scary because she was very destructive with her victim mentality. She was always the victim in every situation. And she would literally destroy people be over it because people constantly felt sorry for her. And that's how she got the love that she needed on the outside. It looks like she's an empath because she's feeling all those emotions, but really it's, she's always the victim and she needs people to always feel sorry for her while she's walking around destroying everyone's lives.
1: Well, it's like a constant setup, you know, it's a constant setup. And what's interesting about it too, is it appears as powerlessness, but it's actually incredibly powerful because there is power derived already a hierarchy. You hurt me. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm healed. I'm fine. You've hurt me. You know, there's an interesting dynamic there. I'd love to think about that more. I'm going to think about that more.
0: Yeah, it's a great question. I'm actually really fascinated with it. I mean, in general, I'm really fascinated with human behavior, but yeah, that is interesting because I remember being friends with her. I was constantly scared. You know, I started to feel scared of saying something that will hurt her, or if she suddenly acted out right away, I would just want want to fix it because I, I knew she's about to, you know, release some bomb that's going to, <laughs> right. you know, ruin me. And I didn't know how to do
1: that. you have no defense against. I mean, you know, from the internet, the sort of culture of cancel culture can have that type of uh, environment, which is we could say something that someone doesn't like, and they can go on a whole tirade about it, you know, and take it out of context and et cetera, et cetera. And it's interesting how that in its extreme cancel culture is that pervasiveness of uh, making the world about ourselves.
0: That is really interesting that you just said that in a way it makes it about you're canceling someone else, but you're really, it's really about yourself. You're making this about Your yourself. Own Do you feel like there's anything I didn't ask you?
1: No, I don't think so. I really love the conversation. Really just enjoy jamming with you.
0: Me too. I really enjoy this conversation. I feel like I always enjoy the conversations where I feel like there's a lot that I learn from them. There's things that I want to explore from it. That's how I know like this was a good exchange for me, at least.
1: I appreciate that. And in my experience, it was a good exchange too. I had a lot of fun, definitely.
0: Um, okay. Well, where can people find you?
1: So you can find me anywhere with the username Create the Love, and I also have an app that I launched. That's all for mental health, like emotional health, all that. You can learn all the things and that's called mind M I N E D. You can download that on Android or iPhone. If you just go to download mind, M I N E D.com. But yeah, you can find me in all the places. And I also have the podcast, as you mentioned, where I talk about all things relational.
0: Okay. Well, thank you so much for coming on. You guys, don't forget to check out everything he just talked about. So you can find him on Instagram and DM him, message him if you have any questions and, um, Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on so much for having me and have a beautiful day.
1: Yeah, you too. Thank you.